Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. A legendary figure in my life, in physics, in cosmology, in philosophy, in mathematics, and that is Professor Lee Smolin joining us from the Perimeter Institute, our neighbor to the north. Lee Smolin, how are you today, my friend? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you very much for the kind words and the invitation. Lee, you've been such a huge influence on my life uh, since before we met, going back to our mutual, uh, our mutual uh, uh, friend, Dr. Professor Stefan Alexander days and uh, and his connecting me to you way back in the early 2000s. And uh, so he gets an intellectual shout out. So Lee, you've made uh, fundamental contributions in many different aspects of cosmology, of physics, philosophy. Um, but what I first want to turn to is the influence that you had uh, on me as a younger physicist, as a beginning professor back in 2006, when uh, your really apocal book called The Trouble with Physics came out. This book influenced me and a whole generation of physicists, both theoreticians and experimentalists like myself. And there are very few books that in physics that are relevant 14, 15, 16, four years, three years, two years after they're written, let alone 15 years after. And in this book, which I reread, re-listened to, recently in preparation for this interview, um, I noted that you were talking about the stagnation in physics in the previous 25 years. So yeah. if I add, I'm not as good at math as you are, but if I add 25 to 15, I get 40. Um, yes. Wow, I just did. <laughs> do you still stand by that or do you still observe that same stagnation uh, to some extent in, in, in physics, at least in theoretical physics? Obviously, experimental physics is completely different. There are certainly areas which are doing very well. Uh, there are areas of quantum materials where the theory is really interesting and I love thinking about it. Um, I think it's still true that we have not made a fundamental discovery experimentally that we explained theoretically or theoretically posited something that was discovered experimentally. Um, and I, we still don't know the why questions about the standard model, why the, there are now something like 30 parameters, including the, now that the neutrino has mass, um, including the masses and the mixing angles of the neutrino. And we have no explanation for what the values of those dimensions constants are, nor for the strength of the gravitational constant nor for the dark energy or the cosmological constant, if that's what it is. And um, I went into physics to understand why, why the universe was the way it is. And there's lots about that we can get, we can get into. The universe is, is not, it's not just some random set of numbers out there. The universe is enormously structured and organized and self-organized and that seems to be at least partly due to those constants being in certain narrow windows where there are lots of chemical and nuclear reactions that can take place. So I, th I think I stand by that. Um, we don't have, uh, we have ideas about quantum gravity and we have more ideas than we did 15 years ago. None of them have, some of them make experimental predictions, but none of those predictions have been enough to help. Mm -hmm. Always the default, like, as you would know, we've looked for Lorentz symmetry breaking at the Planck scale and around the Planck scale using astrophysical experiments, and the evidence is that it's not there. And there's a number of other anomalies that we've looked for and are not there. So um, I, I, it's a very frustrating period. Mm -hmm. And when we look at uh, alternatives to string theory, which has become and still remains a dominant paradigm, I've had conversations with, uh, with, with Carlo Rovelli, who's become a dear friend, and actually we are collaborating together, and he is another person I thank you for putting me in touch with many years ago, and we are collaborating on the first ever audiobook version of Galileo Galilei's dialogue on two chief world systems, oh, the first physicist to work on 
Yeah, it's going to be amazing with uh, another Italian physicist, along with Jim Gates reading a foreword uh, from Galileo, Fabiola Giannate, and others. Stay tuned for more information about that. You can get more if you subscribe to my newsletter at briankeating.com. Uh, but I, I want to uh, turn our attention to some surprising developments that I had talking with a string theory proponent, and that was Michio Kaku, who came on my podcast recently in promotion of his new book, The God Equation, which he claims you know string theory is responsible for a series of successes, not stagnations. Even even such things like the G minus two anomaly and the uh, and the LHC uh, beauty experiment anomaly, that these things are hints, tantalizing hints, of the efficacy of string theory. And I pushed back, Lee, you know, I'm only a simple experimentalist, I said, but I said, to my knowledge, and you, Lee, can correct me if I'm wrong, nobody looked at string theory and said, hmm, let's predict this uh, correction to the uh, to the G minus two uh, from uh, string theory. And he pushed back on me and said, well, nobody did that from loop quantum gravity because loop quantum gravity is so simplistic, it doesn't even have fermions in it. And I said, because I'm just a a, a fool. I, I don't. I, I didn't know how to answer him, you know. And then we say in Judaism, know how to answer a heretic. So I didn't know how to answer him. How would you have answered him, Michio Kaku, when he says loop quantum gravity, which you are one of its foremost exponents, along with Abbas, uh, Abe Ashtakar and Carlo and others? But Lee, how should I have answered him? I'm sorry I let you down, but how should I have answered him? No, the way to end there. First of all, loop quantum gravity is a method. It's not, in my understanding, a theory. It's a method of studying systems whose forces are described by gauge fields, and we can talk about what that means, like the standard model of general relativity. And that method applied to general relativity yields some very interesting descriptions of what the geometry of the world might be on very small scales, that is 10 to the minus 30 something of a centimeter. Um, that method can be applied to theories with fermions, and there are then they fermions behave like fermions. Um, so there's no problem including fermions. There's no problem coupling to gauge fields and coupling to the scalar and the fermions of the standard model. Um, there is a very interesting issue around chirality, which I know is a, is an issue in cosmology and astronomy that you worked on a lot and thought about. So we have uh, some issues about chirality, which I'm happy to admit. My feeling, uh, and I, I hope I can say this without sounding egotistical or something, um, I, the people you mentioned, Abai and Carlo and I, are thought of often as the founders of loop quantum gravity, the inventors. Um, but let's break, let's break, if it's interesting, let's break that down. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Abai brought into being an approach to general relativity based on seeing the, gra the geometry of space and time like a gauge theory. And I can tell you what that means at some point. Uh, it means we care more about measuring how things like fingers or spins move around when you move around space. That's called the connection. The connection tells things how to move. And um, my first role, I guess I had many, but my first role was that there was a whole bunch of beautiful ideas and technology, theoretical technology, that had been developed about QCD, mm -hmm. mainly by a Russian school, Sasha Polikov, Gribov, um, Migdal, and there were also some Americans, principally Ken Wilson. And they had a beautiful picture in which, well, do you know, or do your listeners know that if you pass a magnetic field through a superconductor, it becomes discrete. There's a unit of magnetic flux that that flux line will take on, and there's yes. a polarization. And their hypothesis 
going, well, it was also due to Holger Nielsen and a number of other people, was that in QCD, which is sort of like a complicated version of electromagnetism with three photons, um, the electric field flux would be quantized and discrete. And the, there was a picture of strings made out of that flux holding quarks together. And I basically stole that. I mean, it's, a, it's legitimate. That's what we do in science. All that picture and technology and said, what if instead of QCD, I plug in a Bynes theory about seeing gravity and connection field? and use all those beautiful ideas and tools that Polly Carl and Ken Wilson. And that was, that was, I got lucky in some sense, because I, where and when I went to graduate school, I was immersed in that, those ideas and those technologies. And I was the first to try to apply them to quantum, to quantum gravity. And I had a picture in my head of loops and areas being quantized and so forth. And that picture, with a lot of input from other people, became new quantum gravity. And particularly, Carlos brought a very important picture of how to think of the quantum mechanics of all that. But now, but now it's, that was the middle 80s. I don't want to count, but that's a long time ago. Um, <laughs> I love loop quantum gravity. It's been a, a family. It's been an adventure of friends. Um, but it has problems too. And I'm happy to talk about them. I'm not, I would not think of myself as a proponent in the sense of somebody who ignores the issues. I think there are issues. And when I set up a research center at Perimeter, I used a philosophy, that, which is part of the book you want to talk about, The Trouble with Physics, which I gained from the philosopher Paul Feyerabend, which was to get good people from diverse points of view and don't privilege one point of view just because I have a legacy with that theory. Get good people who, do, who think of quantum gravity from several points of view and have it and have the conflict, which is what the trouble with physics was about. Right. So well, there are people in the loop quantum gravity world who think that I abandoned them, and there are people in the rest of the world who think that I'm a loop quantum gravity guy, and I'm neither. <laughs> uh, I, I really love the way that you say that. And, you know, when I think about things, I often wonder, you know, are we are we putting the gut before the toe or the toe before the gut? And and by that I mean, you know, we don't have a good grand unified theory yet, in mm -hmm. my opinion or my understanding. And yet people want to look for a theory of everything. First of all, I think a theory of everything, and I think Michio does a disservice, to be honest, by saying that this one inch long God equation will describe everything. It'll give you soup and nuts and it'll give you aliens. It'll give you avatars traveling at the speed of light, cruising around the galaxy. It will give me, you know, and, and it will win you a Nobel prize that Einstein couldn't win. And you know how I feel about the Nobel prize as Hey geographic, um, you know, kind of idol worship, onanistic idol worship. Uh, nevertheless, it's, it's important, uh, to consider what is the importance of a theory of everything. And I want to ask you, are we putting the, the toe before the gut? Should we, in your opinion, spend more time thinking about how do we unify the theories that, you know, we have very strong evidence to believe that are unified. I personally don't believe that we should demand that gravity uh, be unified with quantum mechanics. I hope we can get into that. But uh, what do you think? Should we focus first on guts before we get to toes? Well, long before that, let's, let's open up. Can we open up to the whole universe? Yeah. Uh, it's, it seems to me there are two kinds of phenomena. There, loosely speaking, there are phenomena. I mean, we believe, you and I and most of our colleagues, believe some version of the, the laws are pretty stable and there are fundamental laws and we're trying to find out what they are and they're pretty stable. I actually probably disagree with you or at least with most of our colleagues. I think those laws are changeable and I think they do change 
And I think mm-hmm. they have changed. And I think that because that's the only way we're going to explain the question of why they have the form that they have. So I'm on the lookout for principles by which the laws can change. That is, I'm no longer hopeful that there's going to be some magic formula that's going to tell us what the values of all those parameters are. I think it evolved that way because there are consequences for the phys- for the natural world, for the physical world, which, which we can come to. Thinking about it that way, you have to invoke functional explanation. A functional explanation is an explanation of something where you use some consequence of what it does in the world. So there are 20 to the 1,000 different kinds of proteins, roughly. That's 20 different amino acids in a 1,000 places, the typical protein. That's a whole lot more than the kinds of proteins that exist on the biosphere that are coded for in the DNA or the RNA of the various creatures, which are like a, a million. So any protein that exists is lucky because most of the other alternative proteins don't exist. And why did it get lucky? It got lucky because, for example, my code for hemoglobin, which is a fundamental way to move oxygen around within a creature, and which there's a lot of, along with various variants and so forth. So So if you ask, why does hemoglobin exist? Sure, it's got to you got to be able to analyze and see the laws of electromagnetism and so forth acting inside that crazy wound up, folded up thing. But it's also there's also functional explanations, and both of them have got to work. So I don't. So I and I think that's going to apply to everything. And I also don't take the mathematics as dogma, as religion, if I can use that. I was at one time, but I am no longer looking for that mathematical object which has all the truth of that nature to somehow um, transcend our existence and give our life meaning. I think we give life meaning through friendship and families and what we believe in and who we love. And the universe kind of does is doing the same thing. Um, so I, so I'm not. Many of our colleagues are looking for something transcendent when they want to know what the laws, are, what the standard, not you know what the true right. unified theory is. I would love to see some explanation of the structure of the standard model. I've been attending. Uh, a con- we have weird conferences, of course, as you know. Some conferences are every week, or some are every month. So there's a conference about an idea that used to get you kicked out of the ar- archive, but it turns out to be solid <laughs> enough that there are a lot of interesting people doing it, which is that it ha- the standard model has something to do with the number system of Octonians. And mm. that would be cool. Um, but I certainly like some explanation. Where does the SU3 cross SU2 come from? Where does the three generations come from? We all want some kind of answer to that. And my, I'm willing, I'm in fact eager to have a functional kind of example. Um, for example, um, this might come up later. Um, if you want the universe to reproduce itself through black holes, which is an idea that I had. You want the upper mass limit of neutron stars to be as low as possible so that as many supernovas lead to black holes as opposed to neutron stars. And from that, you can get a prediction that the heaviest stable neutron star can't be more than two solar masses. And there's... And the reason is some complicated thing about the strange quark I won't bore you with unless you really, really want. But the thing is that recently there's better and better evidence that there are some neutron stars up in 20, I'm sorry, two solar masses, 2.2, and so forth. And if those hold up, then my, my theory or my hypothesis is 
falsified. And mm-hmm. I, and I and I will proudly say so. Yeah, you talk about that a lot in the book. You talk about you know different uh, gamma ray burst signatures that could be falsified as of 2006. Uh, you have other tests that could be. You describe them as very exciting. Uh, variation in the fine structure constant. You point out as very exciting. And I've I know that you have extreme you know integrity in all ways, not only personally, but because you've you know because I know you personally, but also because publicly you've talked about how this has gone away. That there's no you've stated that you kind of abandoned that that hope, and and you admit that it was a hope back in the uh, early part of the uh, of the you know of the two thousands that yeah. these. Fine structure constant could be revelatory of new physics, but now it's ruled out and you accept that and you move on. I, I wonder, you know, when I first started hearing about you from my, uh, from my best friend, Stefan, uh, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, when I first learned about you, it was like what Stephen Hawking reputedly said about Yakov Zeldovich uh, when he met him. He thought that uh, Zeldovich was like Burbaki, like a collective uh, a, a set of people. And I, I thought that about Smolin. I thought Smolin was like Satoshi Nakamura or whoever that guy is who supposedly or collective came up with Bitcoin or blockchain. Um, I want to ask you, you put out three or four papers recently uh, and some of them with Stefan, some of them solo uh, papers, uh, this voluminous effort. I think you're writing a paper right now. I'd like to see your hands, Lee. Could you put your hands up so I, I know that you're not typing out a paper as we're having this uh, lo- lovely interview? But I want to ask you, what would a theory of everything look like? Uh, would it be the semi-classical Wheeler-DeWitt equation that would be fundamental? Would it be the Schrodinger equation if gravity is, is fundamental? Some say the, the the Schrodinger equation. If it's if gravity is emergent, some say it's the latter. Your recent paper is so fascinating. You have one called "The Quantum Mechanics of the Present," written with Clea Verde, well, yeah. I think is how you Clea. Clea. Yeah. And the other one, the symbiotic emergence of space and the quantum. That one is a solo paper. Let's talk about that first, Lee. Please, what does it mean that for space to become emergent? What does that even mean? What it means is that the organization that of space of things moving in space is not fundamental. It's real for sure. Of course, we 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 see it. But it's not fundamental. And what I mean is that I'm looking, like many of our colleagues, for a formulation of theory that is a story about the world and how it's made that will explain the mysteries of quantum mechanics. So I'm a little ambitious, for better or worse, to explain the mysteries of quantum mechanics and resolve those issues like the measurement problem. I want that same structure to explain general relativity, so to be the quantum theory of gravity, although the fundamental theory that it's coming from is neither quantum mechanics nor gravity. And after a lot of thinking and talking, and here I've been influenced by a number of people, and it's always important I mean, we never do these things alone. So Fotini Marco Pulo was the first person who said to me, space space does not exist so time can. Space is not in the fundamental list of things that are there all the way down, but time is. For example, space-time is in some fundamental way a different thing than matter. And if space-time is an emergent concept, then... It's not really clear what you would mean by unification. Surely it would not be the unification of matter with gravity. It might be a way to get gravity out of matter. That would be a different sort of, I guess you could think of it as a unification scenario, but it's a bit different than what people are considering now. I see. And Roberto Mangibar Hunger, who is a Brazilian philosopher, um, was interested in the same kind of things, and we wrote it was hard, but we wrote a very interesting book together. That that book is called The Singular Universe. And the basic idea of that theory, that theory is now called the causal theory of views. And the basic idea of that theory comes from Leibniz, the philosopher. And it's that 
And it's going to sound a little weird. It's that the universe is composed of partial views of itself. So what I mean is that at every event, and this is a theory of events and the causes between events, there might be two events here, which in some sense are the cause of a third event, which is a cause of a fourth event. And each event has a past, has the things that led up to causing it. And I call that the view. That's borrowed from Leibniz. And, mm -hmm. um, and I take the set of all the views from all the events in the universe to be what the universe is. And then I apply laws to those. And the main idea there came from work in common with Julian Barber a long time ago, which is to measure the complexity of some complex system, whether it's a city or an economy or a piece of quantum space and time by making the views from different events or different situations in it be as diverse as possible. And you can write down a numerical measure of that. And that we take as the quantity that gets extremized to give you the equations of motion. Um, physics is often organized in such a way that there's some quantity that gets extremized or minimized. That's called the uh, action. And, um, and so the theory has an action which is related to the, what we call with Julian the variety. Now, the one last thing I have to say about how this goes together is that if you don't have space, you don't have distances between things. You don't have functions. You don't have fields. You don't have derivatives. So how are you going to write down dynamics? All the things that will go into are writing down some law of a field or a particle involve distances or derivatives or fields. And so we don't have any of that. But what we can do is compare the views. We can ask, you look around where you are, I look around where I am, and that there's a mathematical language to record that view, and then they can be compared. And so the whole dynamics that I develop is based on those comparisons. So that's the, that's the basic idea. Then what happens in that paper, um, with unfortunately too many tech, um, technicalities and so forth, is I derive quantum mechanics from that, from those ideas. Interesting. Now, so you mentioned Julian Barbour. He's an upcoming guest on the Into the Impossible podcast. And I asked him to ask a question of you. And then I, and he responded. And then I will ask you to ask him a question uh, that I will convey through me to him. Okay. So his question to you, if you're willing to play this game, game of time traveling questions. This is a very uh, inefficient way to use the internet, Lee. Uh, I hope you appreciate how in time inefficient this is to talk about time in this way. But anyway, Lee, Julian asks you with what warm regards he sends to you. Uh, if time is fundamentally, what is it like? What are its attributes? Very good. So what we say and this is in the work we did with Marina Cortez, developing a, a, a prior structure to the theory I was just describing. What we say is that the business of time, so I'm not going to define, I'm going to duck it, but I'm going to say that the business or the work of time is to continually make new events which make up, so what I want to say, what time is like is what we experience. That is, we experience the momentary present and the passage of those moments when new things happen and new things happen. And that's the business and the mechanism of time, to keep choosing what new things get made and what they, and therefore that chooses what their past look like. I talked to Frank Wilczek about time and, and his basic thesis, you know, is that, you know, time and, and entropy are somehow fundamentally linked. Uh, Carlo feels this way as well. 
that mm-hmm. uh, you know the Clausius equation of of you know delta s is greater than or equal to zero, entropy is you know, and that things change, and that Frank then supplements that equation with the fact that a clock measures something that is changing, and uh, time is what we call the change in something. So uh, it's sort of a tautology. But it's almost the best that we can do. So clocks measure time, and time is what measure. You know, t- clocks measure changing time, and uh, and time is what clocks measure. <laughs> and, and so uh, and so, but you know, to to my opinion, there because the you know microscopic physics is 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 reversible, except at the moment of quantum measurement. It may be just like with the twin paradox, and you know I have twins, and I get to do experiments on twins all the time. Something I share with a lot of physicists, David Kaiser. Uh, Sabina Hassenfelder, uh, Peter Diamandis. We all have twins. Uh, some of us have boy-girl twins, and that makes it even more fun. Uh, but but anyway, um, you know the kind of the t- classic twin paradox, uh, which which you talk about in in your book on Einstein and unfinished revolution at some level. The 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 question is, uh, you know, if two twins set out, one sets out at close to the speed of light, turns around after a rocket voyage, and comes back. Uh, to Earth, the other twin gets, uh, you know, seems to have aged a lot on Earth, even though they seem to be moving at relativistic speeds. Each one rel- experiences the other one moving relativistically, but it's the one that undergoes the acceleration when he or she turns back and comes back. So at that moment, that instantaneous moment, it's almost as if all the acceleration of time takes place. And mm. I wonder, is that not possible on the micro scale. In other words, yes, the microscopic laws of physics are Im- are immutable; they're time irreversible until you do a measurement, and then that measurement—that's where all the time, you know, directionality of time takes place. Here's how I've been thinking about it lately, and which is, which is um, some of which comes from that last book, uh, Einstein's Unfinished Revolution, and some of it is recent work with. Another collaborator is clearly Verde, and um, and it was basically her idea. So she came to me and she said, "So I start. I think I worry about the distinction between the past, the present, and the future." And so um, my friend Carlo and lots of people believe that there is no objective distinction between the past, present, and the future. And I do. I think that the time is now, now is real. And um, and that that matters to stating the laws of physics. And the question is, certainly the present is real, but is the past, is the future? And how does this relate to quantum mechanics? So clearly his idea which turned out when we looked into it to, to have quite a legacy, which I'll come to, is that the future realm is indefinite. And everything that from quantum physics is indefinite, that is in part of the superposition, could go this way, could go this way, is part of the future. That is the wave function, the quantum mm. state is a description of the future. And what the present is, is the resolution of indefiniteness and ambiguities to definitenesses because the past is always only definite. And I was really interested in that and shook up by that. And then I started to ask some friends. And it turns out that Heisenberg said this quite precisely. It's not, it's hard to find, but Heisenberg said this in Schrodinger. And Freeman Dyson, quite at length in one quote you can find, which of course we quote in the paper. Um, so that's, and this is a new idea, so it could be wrong, but I'm kind of, I find it very interesting, this idea that, um, that what the present is, is the resolution of indefinitenesses and ambiguities. And so let's play, let's think about that more. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, some of the most interesting things in physics come about because of anomalies 
Uh, and, and those anomalies are really the things that make you sit up and notice, as you know, I'm a pilot and, you know, an mm-hmm. anomaly in the cockpit is a, is a flashing red light, you know, and, and you ignore that at your peril. And I think, you know, those are some of the greatest gifts that physicists have. And, and one of the greatest gifts that we got was in the 1950s when we noticed the parity and chirality of nature was not a perfectly obeyed symmetry. Uh, but we do think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that that the combination of discrete symmetries, charge parity, and time reversal is respected. But I wonder, uh, this is work you did with Joao Magazio, uh and uh, and others on, on chiral gravitational waves uh, in 2008 that had some you know, startling predictions. But I remember one line in particular that Stefan really drove home to me was that you make the, ca- the claim that if the laws of physics are unified and if the electroweak sector you know, violates parity, as we know it does, uh, then if gravity becomes unified with the electroweak sector, then it's almost unavoidable that gravity will have some chirality. And I guess this is characterized by this Imerizzi parameter, et cetera. Can you say more? Has your thinking on that evolved? That was one of the most, you know, kind of, uh, you know, earth shattering bombshells that I ever heard, because it meant that in my field, we might see bigger chiral anomalies in the cosmic microwave background that might illuminate physics beyond the standard model, indicative of Lorentz invariance violation, which is more startling to me than inflation. Yeah, me too. Um, I I think I I don't know if I have anything new to say. I'm very grateful for your interest and other observers who t- who has taken these things seriously enough to really look for them. And um, um, but let me here's here's something which is which fascinates me. Uh, general relativity. And I'm not assuming that our listeners, your listeners, are experts in physics, but general relativity has a reputation of being difficult, partly because the Einstein equation is really complicated. And it's a function of this thing, the metric that measures distances, but you've got the inverse of the metric and the determinant of the metric and the square root of the metric and the square root of the determinant of the metric. And it's, it's a mess to compute with, and it's sure a mess to make quantum mechanical. So what Abai used turned out, we didn't, he didn't know that, we didn't know that at the time, but a Polish um, physicist who was a refugee to Mexico named Klebanski had discovered something wonderful, which is that you can look at the Einstein equations in, from a kind of different point of view, which is chiral, that is where you only focus on how the left-handed neutrinos are, re- react to a gravitational wave, and not the right-handed neutrinos. And if you do that, you get equations which are just quadratic equations, period. There's no determinants, there's no square roots, there's no inverses, it's just quadratic equations. And if something were simpler than that, it would be linear, and then we would linear, all linear equations we can solve. So it's as simple as it can get while still being non-trivial. And loop quantum gravity, the reason why all those ideas worked is because Abai rediscovered Fodansky's formulation. So now, so that makes me wonder, um, does nature know about this? Mm. And uh, so, for example, Roger Penrose's great construction, I mean, he's done so many great things, but the greatest, in my opinion, is twister theory, which has found a lot of use in particle physics and string theory and quantum gravity, but of its own is a very radical idea. And twister theory has this chirality built into it. The left-handed gravitational waves are described in a way that's different than the right-handed gravitational wave. Interesting. So that it was an earlier, yes, and you do speak about that in the book. And also, Roger's been a guest four times on the show as well. And his 90th birthday is coming up, and I'm delighted to be asked to speak on behalf of that uh, of that wonderful yes. occasion. Yeah. And uh, that'll be 
something to celebrate in uh, in August, I believe, is his 90th birthday. It's quite amazing. And and thinking about his late great colleague uh, Stephen Hawking, who uh, passed away three years ago, it's hard to believe. Uh, and this this notion that you know he kind of died without having unified you know quantum mechanics with gravity. I, I've been having this provocative statement, Lee, and at the risk of insulting my mentor, you know, Lee Smolin and, and friend, um, I don't know that gravity has to be unified with, with quantum mechanics. I mean, after all, there are only two situations, to my knowledge, at which the quantization of gravity, uh, the failure of gravity to play nice with quantum mechanics becomes important. And that's near a singularity in a black hole mm-hmm. and near the origin of the universe, if indeed it began with a singularity, which Sir Roger, as you know, does not believe it did, and Paul Steinhardt does not believe it did, and many others do not believe it did. Neil Turok, your colleague, does not believe it did. Um, and so there's one very questionable scenario that could get ticked off that we don't have to worry about quantum gravity in that scenario. And a black hole's, uh, you know, once beyond below the event horizon, as you know better than almost anybody else, uh, we we cannot observe the uh, the details. You know, what happens in in the singularity beyond inside the event horizon stays inside the event horizon. So why do we care? I mean, would there be any signature of quantum? gravity outside the event horizon and that would be the only or are there other scenarios in addition to physics beyond the event horizon that is relevant to the uh, the mandate that we must quantize gravity very good so i'm going to give you another reason i mean i'm very interested in the idea of quantum gravity and i don't think there's an open and shut case that we shouldn't quantize it but here's something i've been fascinated by since graduate school days um, and in, I'll, I'll tell the background, in graduate school days, um, I got interested in Einstein. I was always interested in Einstein. And I had a friend who was a historian of physics, Amelia Rochelle Cohn, and she made a proposal to me. She said, why don't we read all of Einstein's papers from the beginning, at least the first 10 years or so? And very few of them were in English, except the three or four classics. But why don't we start with his very first paper, which was on thermodynamics and light, and read with her translating and read forward. And so we did that. And there was a thing that was very apparent as we did that, which is that he was enormously interested in the consequences of applying thermodynamic ideas to light. And therefore, he was very interested in the situation which is called the ultraviolet catastrophe, where if you make a box with conductors, and you must, you must actually know how to do this, um, yeah. like, and you put some light, you have a little hole and you put some light in and you close the hole, the light bounces around, it doesn't interact with itself, but it interacts with the walls where the conductors are, and it thermalizes itself. It bounces and bounces and bounces and bounces and thermalizes itself. And then you open a little hole and you put a spectrograph there, and it comes out the black body spectrum. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting for Einstein, because the black body spectrum without even having the form of the spectrum, although he did actually, of course, this was after Planck, so he knew Planck's guess. And it was obvious that classical physics couldn't explain the fall off at the high frequency. Mm-hmm. The e to the minus H bar omega over the temperature, basically. And... Um, and this was a reason why you had to quantize electromagnetism, was to prevent that um, spectrum from just going out unstably to infinity. And so we read that in several different versions, and I thought, I wonder if you could make gravity waves do that. Mm. That is, mm-hmm. if you could make gravity waves, put them in a box, and force them into a catastrophe, which you had to save by saying there were gravitons. And then the H bar omega equals the energy applied to gravity as well, to gravitational waves as well. And you know what? You can't do it. Hmm. 
you can't make the analog of conducting plays which which reflect and keep confined gravitational waves you can show and I manage I'm not that good at this kind of stuff but I managed a, a, a derivation of the um, efficiency of reflection of gravitational waves off a wall made of any material and as long as the speed of sound of that material is less than the speed of light and the thing is not a black hole and the energy, the positivity of energy um, conditions are met, then you can show that the efficiency is bounded way, way, way away from one. And the gravitational wave just saunters outside the box, never is forced to come to equilibrium. And you can even build on that and show that in the history of the universe, a gravitational wave will never come to equilibrium. That is... Um, at any time since the Big Bang and the Big Bang picture, the mean free time of gravitational waves is longer than the cosmic time. And you can show an inequality like this. So I think that's a little, that's an interesting bit of physics that supports you. Interesting. And if you... Uh if you look, you know, out at kind of other tests that one could, uh, you know, devise, it's natural to kind of look at, um, you know, look, look for tests that could potentially be crisp or decisive tests as, uh, there's a word for this, this, uh, in Latin, this, you know, uh, critical tests that, that yeah. could not, uh, the theory could not survive otherwise, uh, but to pass this test, the bending of light by massive objects, the Eddington experiment is often cited as such an example, even though many experimentalists doubt that it was really truly feasible in the technology back in 1919 to truly verify the level of precision that Einstein achieved. But, but nevertheless, we won't get into that. People can read your book. Uh, and, and Jim Gates's books and, and other books about Einstein, which uh, of which there are many. But I want to turn to the other aspect, which which kind of fascinates me and also dismays me about uh, about string theory, but about you know kind of all theories of everything. And our, our mutual friend Max Tegmark uh, has written about these, and, and that's really the multiverse. Uh, and this is quite disturbing in some ways. Uh, Especially, not the least of which are the you know the multi multiverses that Max speaks about. You know the kind of four levels of multiverses that can exist, including a multiverse in which uh, you know the laws of nature can vary from string vacuum to string vacuum. And this is part of the fight I had with Michio Kaku. Uh, of course, you know he was a gentleman, even if I wasn't. Uh, but the but the argument was, you know, I said to him, you know, you say it's not fair to test string theory. Because I have to tell you uh, which of the 10 to the 500th or more vacua we live in. And, and he said, that's just like solving Newton's equations. How many solutions are there to Newton's equation? I said, there's an infinite number of solutions to Newton's equation. How many solutions to Maxwell's equation? There's an infinite number. What do you need to solve them, he asked me. I said, boundary conditions, initial conditions. Uh, but I said, the situation seems hopeless in string theory. Uh, and even more hopeless maybe than Max Tegmark would admit. And I think I've discovered a fifth level of the multiverse, Lee, if you'll indulge me and forgive me. Because um, as I think Rabbi used to say, the Nobel Prize should go to someone who doesn't discover a new particle back in the 30s. Uh, but in this case, I think the Nobel Prize should go to someone who doesn't discover a new multiverse. I'm worried that there could be an, a type of multiverse where not only the laws of physics change, but the laws of logic change. In other words, why should it be that modus tollens holds in some universe where, or two plus two equals four in another universe? And he claims, no, 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 that's, that was a foolish question. But, um, but if, if, you know, if there are 10 to the 500 different laws of physics, why should there not be 10 to the 500 different laws of mathematics? So, of, first of all, of course, there are different, I don't know how, how many there are, but there are different versions of set theory and logic and mathematics, depending on how you answer questions like the continuum hypothesis and the excluded middle. And there's a whole bunch of different logics and different worlds of mathematics and that I find that fascinating 
since I'm not a Platonist, I don't believe I don't have to believe that they're real. Any of them are real, but they're yeah. they're 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 structures by which we reason, and it's what you say is interesting. And what I don't know if it's worrying, but um, it's 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 interesting, and there, I could come back to that because because I would think a lot about mathematics and I worry about it, especially since mm-hmm. I'm a Platonist. Um, right. <laughs> so um, I do want to talk about this uh, this third paper that you wrote, um, co-author with Stefan and six other authors, Jaron Lanier. Jaron uh, mm-hmm. Lanier. Can you say something about him? He, he's an interesting character. He's uh, his his, his um, affiliation is listed as Microsoft Research yeah. in Redmond, Washington. I once met him in Berkeley, California. Yeah. Uh, can you say something about Jaron? I know he's a friend of yours and Stefan's, but he's a, he's an interesting character, is he not? He's a very interesting person, and I I feel very lucky to have him as a friend. And we're, we're very good friends. Um, Jaron is speaking about autodidactics. Jaron is almost entirely self-educated. Um, he went to a few schools a few times. Um, he is... Um, wonderfully imaginative, wonderfully, he's really um, quick. He's, he's a great communicator. He's a great writer. He's one of the few people I think of as in a, this class of people who are endlessly original and have endlessly important things to say. And he does have a lot that's very important to say whether it's about thinking about artificial intelligence or the role in the economy of the internet companies and so and lots and lots of other things besides we were talking with him yesterday mm-hmm. about a whole lot of these things. Um, so this paper, well, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So here's how that paper came, came to be. Um, so first of all, I have been interested, as we mentioned, in the idea that the laws of physics could change for a long time. And there was cosmological natural selection, which we discussed. I had another approach, or have another approach called the principle of precedence. And Jaron is interested in that idea. And over several, maybe it's even many years, Jaron and Stefan are also friends, and they're both musicians. One thing... Jaron plays an incredible variety of, music, of musical instruments from all over the world. Um, and there are, there are so many stories to tell um, that I'll skip doing that. I'll skip doing that now. Um, well, there's one, let, let me just bracket this. There's the time Jaron took Stefan and I to meet Ornette Coleman. And let me just use me. Can you uh, speak a little closer to the microphone? Who, who did you meet? There's the time that Jaron took Stefan and I to meet Ornette Coleman. Oh, that's right. Which stands out in my as one of the very fortunate experiences I've had. Um, mm-hmm. Jaron has Jaron is among other things a computer scientist. So we didn't even get to that. Um, he's credited yeah. with inventing virtual reality. Um, he is. And his position at Microsoft, um, I don't really understand it, but it seems to allow him complete freedom to do whatever he wants and think about whatever he wants. But he's also involved clearly in projects there. And um, so anyway, um, over years, he and Stefan and I talked about a variety of different ideas. And I don't know where the key idea in the paper comes from. I try to think of it. Um, the key idea in the paper is that we can talk about the laws of nature learning and learning the laws and finding the, its way around those vacua that you're worried about to one that is somehow benefits the universe best. And this sounds crazy, and what we're going to argue is the following. Um, 
there's a lot in that paper that's an 80-page paper about what learning is because we had to do it because we couldn't find it anywhere. But let me skip that and say that people are interested in these machine learning algorithms. They're, and let's just give me that what they do is to learn. They learn facial recognition, they learn pattern recognition, they learn bunches of other things. And let's not get into the epistemology of what it means to say that one of those machines or algorithms learned something. You just give it to me that they learn. And I'm going to take your favorite candidate for the laws of nature as long as they're of the form of something like general relativity and something like gauge fields and fermions and scalars. And we're going to map that theory into the learning machines, the machine learning algorithms. And we discovered that map. Now, I don't, I don't remember why we were looking for it, but at some point it was clear <laughs> that there was a map. And the map uses a technical result, which I knew, and which has to do with a class of models called matrix models. And mm -hmm. that's, that's just the technicality that was used. So right, we have right. demonstrated that result. And then we have thought about what devices you could make that could be mapped to the, the laws of nature to investigate this idea. There were um, seven people on the paper. Everyone was essential. Um, and... Um, and they range from a senior Microsoft computer scientist who knew, who was kind of bringing in all of the knowledge about machine learning. Mm -hmm. um, Will Cunningham, who's a very talented young theoretical physicist who unfortunately we're, learning, we're losing at the moment to the world of startups. Mm. And it was a lot of fun. It was really hard. I haven't worked on anything in the. You work in collaborations all the time. Yeah. And for me, it was kind of a new experience to work in a collaboration that large. And it really did work, and it came together. But it took a year. That's a full year of meeting together three times a week. That's great. And, there's, and you don't know what's uh, on the cutting room floor. There's a whole bunch of stuff on the uh, Yeah, floor. I believe it. Yeah, so I'll try to get Jaron and Stefan on the podcast at some point, too. Stefan's been on three or four times already, but I've never met uh, – I've never had Jaron on. I'm going to have Nathan Mirvold on, who was director of research at Microsoft for a while and is uh, kind of an autodidact. And maybe that'll um, segue to my final question for this interview. I hope you'll give us uh, the opportunity to talk more about uh, – physics and in the intervening you know month or so before we can talk again about uh, maybe cosmology we'll do a dedicated cosmology talk next time you'll probably write 10 other papers and three books but um, but I do want to talk uh, just just once about you are you know I see you as an autodidact you've written papers in economics you've written papers in in uh, as you say set theory and physics and cosmology you've written six books um, uh, to date Um what uh, and speaking of of learning, as we just did with you know c computer learning, um, do you think you can teach creativity, Lee? Can you teach someone to be imaginative, to be creative? Um, is there a, is there is there a nature nurture thing, or you just have to be born with it? That's a very good question, and I don't know. Um, I certainly believed that it, it was teachable most of my life. And I would, I would hope that that's true because it's uh, being creative is a great thing. And I would hope that everybody, whatever, however their life is organized, had access to that, has access. And it doesn't mean that you're good at it. I mean, I'm not good as, I'm not a good musician. I got, unlike Stefan, who is a good musician, I, right. Aaron, I got good enough to play with the people who are really good. And then it was like, okay, um, that's not that's not my genre. But I still have a few guitars and still play them. 
sometimes. Um, and I've, I'm working with two people now that are, are unusual people to be working with. And they're endlessly creative and smart. And I don't know where it comes from. Mm. I, um, you know, Jaron, Stefan, um, Claudia, um, so many people I've been fortunate enough to know have this, their own ideas about everything. They, they, look at, they look at the world, the same world I look at. They read the same stuff. And they come up with stuff just, it's like turning on a faucet, stuff that's worth thinking about and worth listening to. Mm. And um, I, don't know, I don't know where that comes from. Um, there are certainly claims that you can't teach it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, the, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a left turn on you. Um, here's what I think is changeable. And, uh, and I hope I don't sound like, I don't know, some moralistic something. Um, and people are going to look like he said. But let me try it. I think character matters enormously. And being in this crisis that we've been, I see it every day. And I think that um, the ability to see clearly what's going on around you and take responsibility for it and think about it, the ability to follow your own compass, to not care is fine and put it what other people think. Um, I think, and um, I have a friend I've learned a lot from, St. Clair Semen, who's a sculptor, he's a great sculptor. And Saint, so I'm going to leave it with a kind of quote of St. Clair's. Um, St. Clair used to tell me that. Um, that you get sort of into your 20s for free. And if you're, if you're going to go on and become useful and really make a contribution with what you do, it really starts to matter what your character is and how much you're willing to be on the edge and take risks and question yourself. Mm. And by... 50 and 60, it really it really shows. It really starts to show. Mm. He was probably 40-something. Wow. And I'm about 10 years younger than him. And then I'll say something else. You don't have to keep this in the tape or not. Um, no, it's great. But um, this is, I'm saying this to you from him in a way. Um, unlike you, um, we had children late and had to be and talked about it and thought about it and he had his daughter a few years before we had time and he said to me you have no idea what you're giving to the world by having a child you're unmurdering somebody mm. and you're doing this to the much higher degree than I am but I am certainly fully involved, and it is a great thing to do. You know, that's, it's wonderful that you say that, Lee. And actually, I was going to close with this to give us some time between our next uh, conversation. But I, I did want to say that uh, I once heard, you know, Sam Harris talking about, you know, the impossibility of, you know, teleportation and, you know, time travel. It's kind of this, this fantasy that human beings have. And I said, no, that's, that's actually a lie. I didn't say it to him because, you know, he, he won't pick up the phone when I call him. But but anyway, um, I said, actually, there is such a thing as teleportation. It's just you can't teleport yourself. You teleport your values. You teleport your ethics. You teleport your character into the future. And it's called children. And it doesn't even have to be your biological children, Lee. It's your ideological children. And I count myself, and I, and I don't blame you, but I, I count myself as kind of one of your ideological children. So, you know... I have a great, you know, friend, uh, you know, her name is Melanie Notkin. She's known as the savvy auntie. She can't have children. She didn't have children, whatever. 
she has influenced thousands of millions of people even though she didn't have biological children so i am blessed to have biological children but even if someone is not you can act like a parent you can communicate and thereby doing teleport yourself into the future and what else is there lee that's time travel and 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 you've done that for me and you've done that for millions of people i just want to thank you so much lee for being uh being such a great human being and being an influence on me even long before you knew me and and again you don't get any of the blame for anything bad i do with your good influence <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa brian that's uh, um, the thank you i i have no words thank you for that well lee thank you so much for going into the impossible any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.